I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Looking for a way to support The Dinner Party Show? A percentage of any purchase you make through a buy link on thedinnerpartyshow.com will allow us to keep bringing you the show free of charge. If you're an Amazon customer, head to thedinnerpartyshow.com and click on the Amazon Gold Box located in the lower left-hand corner of every page of our site. Do this, and a percentage of each purchase you make at Amazon during that shopping session will support our continued operation. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And now it's time for another episode of The Dinner Party Show. Hi, I'm Kristen Johnston, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. I went to a marvelous party. Most people don't even know the facts. They go with their gut, and the only thing their gut cares about is money. Christopher? This is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine. You first, Eric. Live from the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's The Dinner Party Show. The Internet's first live comedy variety show with your hosts, New York Times best-selling authors, Christopher Rice. No, there's actually a new study that confirms every other child you see on the street is a ghost. <laughs> and Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't want to talk too much, but... Okay, no, no. We're going to take up a collection for the stained glass window. Now we want the dirt. <laughs> Featuring reports from their largely unqualified staff of special correspondents. Sex is like Christmas. It's the not knowing what you're going to get that makes it exciting. New York is a giant trash island infested by has-been theater queens. If we're really serious about cutting federal spending, the biggest waste of public funds I can think of is Congress. Two snaps for Jesus! The Dinner Party Show. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you live and for free through thedinnerpartyshow.com and our free mobile app. And now, direct from the kitchen by way of the... Get out of my office! It's your hosts, Christopher and Eric! Good evening, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and you're listening to a special episode of The Dinner Party Show for August 16th, 2015. That's right. Welcome to our sixth and final TDPS Summer Sampler. It's called Our Favorite Things, and tonight we begin by taking you back to the launch of a special new section of our website, thedinnerpartyshow.com, that's all about the stuff we love. If you go to thedinnerpartyshow.com, if you go to the left-hand menu and you look all the way down at the at the uh, list of items, you will see a new seal, and that seal is for Christopher and Eric's favorites. Woohoo! Do some do the some fanfare. Whatever. <laughs> and that's Jordan Ambersand weighing I'm in on I'm always negative. Yes. We have wanted to do this all along. The internet is all about things that people hate, and we are not in favor of that being the only thing that the internet is about. So we have decided that we wanted to do things that we love. Things that we love. We are recommending um, 
products. We're recommending movies. We're recommending television shows. We're recommending household items. We're recommending snack We're foods, recommending things that we love. That we love. And it, it, and telling you why. There's a little bit. We've written up a little bit about them. And Absolutely. Product reviews. But not normal. They're not really like the reviews we do on the show, which is, that's horrible and we hated it. These are actually reviews of things that we actually Love and recommend. And we've to wanted you. to do this all along. It just took us two and a half years to get around to it. Well, it took us two and a half years to develop a very user friendly portion of the site that's easy to use. We will remind people that obviously all of the um, buy links included with these products um, will benefit the show in some way. They're affi- member- we're members of several affiliate programs. So this is a way to try to. Uh, generate financial support for the dinner party show, which wi- we appreciate. Without and it won't change anything for you. It won't no. change your shopping experience at all. If you like one of the things, you click on it. In fact, if you're planning to shop on Amazon at all, if you go to any page in the lower left-hand corner and click on the gold box, it'll take you to Amazon, and then your whole shopping trip will help support the absolutely the dinner party show. And it won't change your experience at all. No, it won't. It's just it so won't. log in to Amazon.com through the dinner party show from now on, and exactly. we. Really appreciate this it. is your way to express your support as a party person for the Dinner Party Show. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Ryan. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And tonight we are launching, as part of our Summer Sampler series, we're also launching a new slew of favorites. A slew, huh? A slew. Is that not a very positive a word? Bouquet a bouquet of favorites. A favorites. Yeah, a slew sounds sort of, I don't know, um, like a, a, a group of weasels. A slew of weasels, <laughs> a slew doesn't it? of weasels. And I have to say, judging from the dinnerpartyshow.com and our favorite store, weasels do not appear anywhere in the Inventory that we have presented no, there for our listeners. They are in no way included in our favorites. They may be great, but they're not on our list. Okay, so just to remind people, if you're new to the Dinner Party Show, the favorites program is something that we do because most of the stuff you read on the internet is people bitching about stuff they hate. Well, we're certainly we crazy that. about that do and do that. plenty of it ourselves. Yeah. We wanted to do something that was just about the things we love. Right. So every uh, so we're going to this is what we're doing. We are we're launching uh, a new. Okay, we're not going with slew because that sounds like weasels. We're putting up new recommendations for books, movies, household products, um, other things that you might eat or drink, and they're all going into a special store section at thedinnerpartyshow.com, which you can find by accessing the little seal on the left-hand menu of our website, which says Christopher and Eric's favorites on it. And if you're signed up for our newsletter, you're getting a newsletter right now, if you're listening to this during the original broadcast, in your inbox with some uh, favorites. And I can't leave out the most important part, if you use it, if you buy any of these things through our site, or if you even use any of the links, the Dinner Party Show gets a small percentage of your sale, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Right. In fact, if you click on, if you're going to shop on Amazon or iTunes or um, at Barnes and Noble, you can click on the link. Um, on the dinner party show of any of the products from one of those sellers, and then your whole shopping visit will be included in a small way in a contribution to the dinner party show. And again, it won't change your shopping experience or, or your expense you at all. And we'll remind you at this time about the gold box on our site. We have an Amazon gold box so that you don't have to go hunting through our individual buy links. If you're going to make a, a shopping trip to Amazon and you want to support the show while you do it, just enter through that gold box on every page of That's our site. That's a great idea. It's yeah. so much easier. All right, Eric Chuck so what is one of the favorites that you were recommending this month? Well, my highlight this month, it's summer, and it's that time of year. It's time to stick your feet in the surf, um, if there are no sharks reported in your area, yeah, exactly. and uh, sit in that low-slung chair and uh, 
read a wonderful summer beach Sit book. Sit in that low-slung chair Absolutely. with that slew of weasels hanging That's off right, you at every turn. That's right, with a slew of weasels, um, yeah, probably playing in the, the tall pampas grass <laughs> behind you. Anyway, I love a good book, and my very, very favorite, the most romantic book I've ever read is a book called The Last of the Wine by Mary Renault. Oh. Or Mary Renault. I'm not sure which it is. She wasn't French, so I'm not sure if you pronounce the T or not. Mm-hmm. But it's um, a story set during, I believe it's the Peloponnesian War in Athens, and it's this amazing love story. And I actually, the first time I read the book, the, when the two characters finally get together, I actually believe that I swooned. I'm not entirely sure what swooning is. Can you do a I, sound effect that I, recreates your swoon? <sighs> I had to lie down. And the was, hand is going the, hand, to, the, the back, back of the, of the hand, hand is going to his forehead, forehead ladies and gentlemen. It was definitely, I literally had to lie down. I was so like, all of the blood left my head, I think oh, would be okay. maybe a part of the process. But whatever, it was a very sort of, but it wasn't about being tawdry. It was just incredibly romantic. Great. Um, and I've read it more than once, and I recommend it absolutely. Um, Amazon has it, uh, uh, probably Barnes and oh, Noble, I'm but sure, it's I'm sure, it's I'm a sure. it's a classic, and it's a wonderful story. I love Mary Renault. Anything by Mary Renault is great, but Last of the Wine that's my favorite. How about you, Christopher? Okay. What's your summer well, favorite? Well, I, I I recommended a romantic book because you I, I recommended two books, one romantic and one scary. And because you talked about your romantic selection, I'm going to talk about the scary one, which is an older horror thriller called Stinger by one of I think in my not so humble opinion, he's the greatest American horror writer who's ever lived. And yes. That means he's better than that guy whose last name rhymes with Ring, who I'm a big fan of. But I think Robert McCammon is better. And Stinger is one of his best books. I don't think I would have written my book, The Heavens Rise, if I hadn't read Stinger. Because it was a demonstration of the fact that you can write a very scary, spectacle-filled horror thriller without turning the characters into two-dimensional targets in a shooting gallery. And you could still Not that anybody else does that. No. But just as a sort of general note. Just as a general rule in the world of horror novels. Uh, Stinger is, I think, one of Robert McCammon's best books. It's got a very, I want to say, an almost B-movie storyline, but the rendering of it is so cool. And I really cared about the characters. And as always, Robert's writing is is wonderful, and I'm honored to have a blurb from him on The Heavens Rise. So wow. we, each, we each recommended five new things. So there are 10 new additions to the favorites page. And for the rest of the show tonight on our TDPS Summer Sampler, we're talking about favorites from our guests and from all sorts of other people. So the theme tonight, I believe, will be largely positive. Right, even if we... Usually aren't. Even if we usually aren't. All right, stay with us. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Show. Tired of dining alone? Enjoy The Dinner Party Show with friends. Like us on Facebook and become one of our party people. Then, during our live shows on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, you can join the conversation and post questions for Christopher, Eric, and their guests. During the week, drop in for tasty side dishes, show updates, and fun with the other party people. The Dinner Party Show. You are the life of our party. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and welcome back to our final TDPS Summer Sampler 
our favorite things. It's not possible for an artist to talk about their career or their craft without also talking about the works that inspired them. That's what we discovered in these interview highlights. During the Dinner Party Show's first ever live on location broadcast, novelist and premier party person Anne Rice discussed the cultural and personal impact of a fairly well-known film and its director. You also talk about the time around then, I think it was at the American Booksellers Association where they screened Star Wars. Yeah. Right? You went yeah. to an advanced screening of Star Wars before anybody knew it was going to be Star Wars. They talk about Lucas screening Star Wars for his good friends, Marty Scorsese and Steven Spielberg, and they left his ranch going, man, what has he done? I didn't get it. Like, <laughs> should we talk to him? You know? <laughs> it's a little Wait, thing. Wait, Ma- Martin Scorsese said yeah, His that? good friends. It's, it's in a book about that, that period yeah. of filmmaking. They okay. said that he screened it for his good filmmaker friends, and they walked away scratching their heads saying, yeah. I think George yeah. has lost it, man. Yeah. But, but yeah. you had a different experience when you saw Star Wars. Well, yeah, we were at the American Booksellers, 1977, and my publisher, Ballantyne, was also doing the Star Wars try-in. Uh, tie-in and there was a guy walking around as Darth Vader but we didn't know who he was <laughs> and we were all invited do you want to go yeah so what if I want to go okay let's go so we all went to this big theater in the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco and with one projector I guess they uh-huh. showed us the movie and before it began George Lucas got up there on the stage and he said something I've never forgotten he said we made the movie we wanted to see and couldn't find and I thought, wow, that's, that's just brilliant. You know, that's what we authors have to do is write the book we want to read. And Absolutely. Can't find. But anyway, um, Star Wars began in all its glory. And I remember the music was blasting and blasting and blasting. And there was a, just a moment of silence and somebody screamed, louder! You know, flattened in our seats. But anyway, we all loved it. We all loved it. We caught right away what it was. And, and, and we just were thrilled, but we had no idea that before the end of the week, people would be just going wild over Star Wars. And so it was fun to witness the birth of that, that particular, what would you call it, the triumph of the nerds? I mean, the, yeah. you know, it, was, it was a great moment. It was a historic moment for fantasy and sci-fi and speculative fiction. Well, it was about fiction. revisiting, I, for me, the, seeing, I went to a sneak preview of uh, Star Wars as well, and the thing that I was caught up in, and it sounds like very much this, it was like those Saturday afternoon matinees. It was yes, it was. It was almost like freeing our inner child. Yeah. It was it was an opportunity as an yes. adult because people were answering back to the screen and carrying yes. on and yes. and cheering for, and hissing at the villain and it was it was it that was. kind of participation. Yeah. It seemed to almost invite that. Where yeah. was it with Jaws on the timeline of movies? Was it after Jaws? Yes. Or it was after Jaws. Yeah, it was That's several right, years because after I think Jaws. Lucas took out an ad in Variety um, uh, that showed R two D two with a shark on the end of a hook because it had the box office had outdone Josh, <laughs> uh, Jaws. Excuse yeah. me. So he was ribbing Spielberg. In and the pages and of- I guess you know that every studio in Hollywood turned down Star Wars at least twice. But isn't that usually how it goes? Yeah. I yeah, mean, every sure. studio turned yeah. down something amazing. Oh yeah, times. and and when the Godfather was screened uh, at the beginning at Paramount, they walked out with their head shaking, saying, "Oh no, it's never going to work." The star disappears in the middle. He dies, Marlon Brando. This is not going right. to work. This is just, there's no story. There's no plot. And, you know, the rest Dallas is history. Dallas Buyers Club was turned down like 27 times or yeah. something. I, yeah. I think that it's hard to make people see. But I, I think that's part of what we face as artists is, is believing in ourselves when no one else does. What's amazing, Eric, is that they believe in themselves when they make so many mistakes. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 no, 
It really is. It's amazing. I, you know. To hear our complete live on location interview from BenCon with my mother, Ann Rice, download episode 93 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. And now, another reigning diva of the literary world, it's Jackie Collins. Were you influenced by movies? I think you, I read an interview where you said you were. Yeah, as a young I person, was. You were I was in the influenced movie by The Godfather, which yeah. I think is one of the best movies ever, and the book of The Godfather, which I absolutely love. You loved. can sit with my mother. My mother she reread that book this year and says it's book. just one of the most influential works of popular fiction. It she's really ever. She is. gave me a first edition for my birthday this oh, year, a hardcover for, yeah. How fabulous. Yeah. That's yeah. so great. Yeah. But, um, um yeah. yeah, it's a fantastic, <laughs> a fantastic movie, a fantastic book, and I always say it's my favorite because there's so many scenes in it that are so memorable. So when you read the book, you can almost envision what's going to happen. And then, of course, Al Pacino walks into the movie, and you're just, you, you know, you have to fall in love with Michael Corleone. Mm. Yeah. yeah, right, right, absolutely. Yes, right. such an amazing, yeah. It, and it really did sort of begin an entire different approach to telling those kinds yes. of stories. Exactly. Yes. Like, I wanted I wanted to write a gangster with a heart of gold. Right. Mm-hmm. And Gino has a heart of gold. And from he, a personal sort of perspective, yeah. as opposed to just sort of postage stamp monsters on the side of the... Well... You know, in much the same way that your mom has that's made what, the That's what mom said the impact of it was. It was an interior story about the mafia told from the point of view yes. of the insiders. To hear this complete interview with novelist Jackie Collins, download episode 103 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. And now, self-described film freak Jack Morrissey on one of his all-time favorite movies. Okay, so we asked you to come in with two movies which you felt qualified as at new least, Hollywood classics. Talk at least as many two. As you right. want about. We're all going to talk about movies. So. That's it. You can't talk about any more. That's it. Stop exactly. talking. Exactly. And two, one please. of those movies was happened to be my personal favorite, which I had completely forgotten, which was Fearless, directed <laughs> by so much Peter Well, Weir. I wasn't going there. You remember you had this, and when I told you before the show, you were like, oh, Fearless by Peter Weir. But yes, yeah. talk As opposed to, me. to Fearless starring Jet, Jet Li. Jet Li, which is not the same movie. Is, no. Not the same movie at all. Is no. that the movie? No, no, that's a different movie. <laughs> that's a story. It's a, it's a that's an off the air. We'll tell that story okay. in the plus show. How does yes, that sound? That's the, that's the after hours. Edition. Now every, everyone's going to be on the Facebook page. Yeah. What was that story? I'll Eric tell was the story tell eventually, but not tonight. Fearless. Fearless Why? with Jeff Bridges and Rosie Perriers. Yes, <laughs> Rosie Perriers, huh? Rosie. Jeff Bridges, Tom Hulse. Um, speaking of Isabella Rossellini, David Lynch. Yeah. Yep. Um, Amazing film. Yeah, Rosie Perez, who I right. think got nominated. I think she did get nominated, yeah. Um, yeah, directed by Peter Weir from the novel by Rafael Iglesias. Iglesias, yes. Cinematography by your... My cousin, cousin Alan Davio. Alan Davio, who yes. shot E.T. Ah, and Empire absolutely. of the Sun for... And The Color Purple for Mr. Spielberg. That's correct. correct. That is correct. Nice credits. Great credits. Right. Yeah. Was that the only time he worked with Peter Weir? Do you know? I think it was the only time he worked with Peter Weir. And and I think the story I remember being told is that the budget on the movie was reduced because they went with Jeff Bridges and not a bigger star. So the movie is about a plane crash. It's about the survivors of a major commercial aviation disaster. Which Which goes down in a cornfield. But it's about the way in which fear affects and manages our lives. It's a really amazing piece of work. It's a great, great movie. Just within the last year or so, finally, finally released to Blu-ray. Yes. And not just released to Blu-ray. What that means is 
the DVD that Warner Home Video had out for decades was actually pan and scan. It wasn't even letterboxed. Oh, God. So finally, um, it got the respect that it deserves from Warner God. Home Video. And the the novel was brought out as an ebook, I believe. Is that so? I think it was Open Road, which is a big digital publisher, got the rights to the novel and, and brought it out. I think it was either That's out of print or you had to locate used copies of it. Right. I haven't actually read the novel, right. but I've seen the movie many times. I think times. the author did the screenplay adaptation himself. I believe so. Yes, yep. he did. Golly. Yeah. Why, why is it, uh, for you, why is it a, a new classic? Well, the premise is so brilliant. It, it's, it is about a few people who, who survived this airline crash, but it's obviously centered around the Jeff Bridges character. Um, he loses, he completely loses all sense of fear, having survived what he was convinced was, as he puts it, the moment of his death. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, how that changes him, how that changes his relationships with his wife, his kid, his business partner, uh, who did not survive the crash. Right. Mm-hmm. He has an ongoing relationship with his business partner's wife, Platonic. But um, Tom Hulse plays his attorney. It's just an unbelievably um, beautifully observed tone poem, which makes it sound like a slog. But is no, absolutely not. not. It's, it's one of those, along with Cloud Atlas, it's a movie that sort of, yeah. it could change your life. Yeah. If you intersect with it in the right way that, by the way, it's not just me. There are, you know, I could call 50 people within an hour on the phone and they would all cite Fearless as one of the great, great, great unheralded movies from the late 1980s. And one of the great movies, if not the great movie, along with, say, Dead Poet Society, Witness, and Mosquito Coast um, well, even no picnic at Hanging Rock. I mean, Peter Weir, the, the Australian film director, is really yeah, an absolute, let's not use the G word, but he's very, very, very talented. Very talented. To hear this complete interview with Jack Morrissey, download episode 108 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. And now, Dinner Party Show favorite, TV writer Brian Fuller on an odd little horror film he can't seem to forget. So... Congratulations, Christopher. Thank you. <laughs> what, where are those children coming from? Yay! The children are here. It's scary when the it's children about the start... children. What about the children? <laughs> We're both running for president also. So... What about the children? Brian Fuller, what did you do this summer? Here it's our guest, Hello. special guest Brian Fuller is in the studio. What did I do this summer? Well, first of all, we should discuss the children. Remember the children that like 1980 horror movie with the children who got in the bus that drove through the, through the nuclear cloud and then their fingernails they turned black. They were like black. blonde and their eyes were blue and different glowed. Movie. That's Dif- children of the children. damned. That's, That's wrong children. There's the all children. The children are all over the Have place. Have you seen The Intruders, the new BBC America show? I hear it's there is very a good. little girl on there that like not since um, Kristen played Claudia uh-huh. have I seen a little girl on film that was that disturbing like it is phenomenal not I even Dakota Fanning more disturbing she's than Dakota chilling. Fanning like she's, she's chilling yeah terrifying. wait let's back up I want to hear uh, about this movie what's the children so the bus drives so the through chi- a nuclear so plant. a bus drives through a nu- nuclear cloud and oh, the children on board get transformed into zombies of some sort, and their fingernails turn black. Ooh. And then when they hug you, they burn you alive with the superheat of their evil. 
That's so they all come home and they hug their parents. Right. And, and so kill that's them. the end of that. And the cast included uh, Karen Black, Adrian Barbeau. Uh, you know, I'm just going to rattle them all off. PJ Souls. PJ Souls. This wasn't that long ago. Those those people weren't children. <laughs> How old is this movie? Well, 1980, I think, or like yeah, 70. None of those girls were children. Or 79, maybe no, those were the earlier. parents. Those were the oh, mothers who banded yeah, I guess together, they could have been. I forgot about the parents' part. Well, yeah. the best part was the ending because a pregnant lady had the baby, and as it was nursing on her breast, its fingernails turned black, and you cut to black. <laughs> oh, so the kids grew up. They didn't no, no, stay they, kids. They, they killed all the kids. Because they had it coming. Uh, yeah. But yeah. The, with those black fingernails, that's yeah. so It's last so season. goth. Yeah. It's so, so done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, are, are... <laughs> to hear this complete interview with Brian Fuller, download episode 85 from the show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Variety Deputy Editor Ted Johnson is up next. What's your sort of favorite summer movie? What's, what's the... Well, this is going to sound bizarre, but... Uh... I remember the summer of 1977, which is a classic summer. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, the, the whole blockbuster was just getting it really going. Kind of was Jaws born had, right yeah, about was, then. Yeah, yeah Jaws uh, came just a couple years before that. Yeah. Movies changed dramatically. Everyone was lining up to see Star Wars, uh-huh. uh, and there was such hype about Star Wars. And I remember as a kid. Liking the spy who loved me better than Star Wars. <laughs> and I'm very nostalgic to that James Bond movie. It was the first James Bond movie I had ever seen. Oh. And I just I just took How to that movie. Were you? I was uh, ten years old. Oh, okay. So uh, it, <laughs> so it's that gonna seem strange, okay. but for really, nostalgia the reasons, the spy who loved me is it was my favorite movie. Roger even Moore. even through that summer. So I was gonna also so say is that, that your favorite Bond? Is Roger Moore your favorite Bond? Uh, actually, you know what? The new guy really. Daniel is, Craig, I'm yeah, telling you. The new guy is really my yeah. favorite Bond. I mean, I think they've really, really, really perfected amazing. this. It's a wonderful, franchise. yeah, the new the new take on it, I have to say. Yeah. I, I love Sean Connery and wonderful show, movies like Diamonds Forever, but they were more camp. Mm-hmm. And certainly the Roger Moore era was all about camp. That it, it was kind of the is. scariest henchman of them all. Richard Kiley's Jaws with <laughs> yes, the metal right. teeth scared me so bad as a child. Back to Jaws. It's a tie-in. But it's yeah. all about Jaws for yeah, you. Yeah, scarier than Odd Job, the guy with the hat that could cut your head off. Absolutely. And I'm not got, sure but, how scary that really is. <laughs> I thought that hat was scary. I don't want to have my head cut off well, by a hat. Having your head cut off is kind of a bad thing. <laughs> I have to say, though, the whole that whole Roger Moore franchise got a little ridiculous by the time a of you little. Kill, you know and he was i think he was 61 years old and i actually got the chance to interview roger moore and i asked him because oh what God. i loved was when he, he went was, skiing he was, he was that he was james bond that long he was that long yes <laughs> he really held on to that franchise for all that was worth but i was uh, i interviewed him once and i loved the james bond skiing sequences and i asked him listen I told him, you know, those were my favorite parts, and he he said he didn't learn to ski until the last the last <laughs> Bond movie. The rest was all blue screen and stunt doubles. Just him standing on a thing, yes. leaning back and forth with a fan blowing in his hair. I love That's that. That's about I it. I love that. There's a James Bond skiing school where you can learn how to ski while people fire machine guns at you, and then they blow up the slope right at the end, and you have to live. <laughs> and it's all done in front of yeah, a blue it's screen. all done in front of a blue screen. <laughs> okay. Skiing in front of a blue screen. To hear this complete interview with Ted Johnson, download episode 31 from our show archive at the dinner party show. 
Radio.com or from iTunes. Popular historian Leslie Klinger had much to say about one of Eric Shaw Quinn's favorite things in this highlight from his interview on Sherlock Holmes. I've been swept up by the Cumberbatch yes. Um, yes. adaptation. How do you do? You, are you a well, fan? Well, I, I, I love the scripts. The scripts are very exciting because they're very carefully drawing elements out of the original right? stories and sort of embedding them as little candies in, into the stories. And I love that. I actually have done live tweeting during the broadcasts for PBS, um, sort of trying to, I call them tweet notes, sort of little footnotes about, oh, this is from oh, that that's story and this brilliant. is from this. I love and all that, that idea. And Let, let's hear your Twitter handle for those who want to. L. Klinger. L. Very clever. You I'm know. in. Yeah. Um, I'm so, in. So, um, yeah, because they're, well, all, they're like little, the, they call them Easter eggs yes, in, in yes. program parlance. The, the little bits of, oh, there's there's this exactly. one, and there's that one. Exactly. Oh, I remember that. I know how this fire turns and they're, out. And they're delicious. But, I must say, I, I although I admired the acting, I don't like this Sherlock Holmes, and mm. I'm not sure we're supposed to. Um, I think you know he's. You mean you don't like the portrayal, you, right? You, correct. The production. Right. Oh no, no, no. Cumberbatch is terrific. Okay. Of portraying a nasty, rude, mm-hmm. prickly—that's a good word for the FCC—a prickly character. <laughs> and, we're not actually regulated by the FCC, oh, so good. fire away, so Les. Yes. This is an immature Holmes. I mean, Mm. he's only supposed to be, I think, 29 in the show. Uh And so we're seeing Holmes before he's turned into a mensch. He's not really become the man that he will be that we can love later. He's not very lovable. But But, uh, how does that play with the Robert Downey Jr. version that we've now seen in two major Hollywood films, both of which you were consultants on, right? Correct. God, I love that. I mean, is is the I guess the question I want to ask you is: is the degree of contemporariness of the adaptation measured in terms of how they depict Holmes's assets as also being liabilities socially, to the degree to which they pathologize his exceptionalism? I think that, yes, I think both of them do that very successfully. Um, Robert, uh, in a slightly different way, but, you know, he's clearly a misfit and uh, doesn't much care who figures that out. Yeah, it's the thing that I love about the Cumberbatch version. I'm a, a fool for the uh, the Guy Ritchies. Those are just, I love Guy I Ritchie anyway. And those movies are so much fun. But the Cumberbatch one is, the thing that, that seems to me so brilliant about the choice is that what would Holmes be like if we lifted him out of the yes. protection of being a white male in Victorian society and dropped him into modern society with the same sort of personality and disdain and dismissiveness yes. for everybody else? I wonder if this isn't kind of how that would – it's almost like time travel. It, it is. Uh, and, and I think – and uh, Martin Freeman is another big asset of the show playing Dr. Watson. Yes. Um, although, again, he's um, – a little weaker than I think Watson ultimately is. And also this is, lippier. He's a codependent, really, mm, of yes, Holmes. I yes, think. that's a good And, um, you know, later we see in the stories, we see Dr. Watson weaning Holmes off of his drugs. Um, and I don't quite see that yet in Martin Freeman, that he's ready to stand up and help move Holmes toward being a better person. To hear our complete interview with Sherlock Holmes historian Leslie Klinger, download episode 25 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Everyone gets served.
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to our final TDPS Summer Sampler for 2015. It's called Our Favorite Things. And as we learned shortly after launching the Dinner Party Show, it's not always possible to talk about what you like without also rubbing against what you don't like, especially when you have two opinionated folks at the same table. I'm not opinionated. You're opinionated. Uh, I was actually talking about Ted Casablanca and Mark Andreco, but thanks for proving my point, Christopher. Well. And I, Les Mis I, is I, an I, interesting film. I have not seen Les Mis. I was not a fan of Savages. I, I thought Savages really? was rudderless. I just thought it was a mess, yeah. Oh, come I, on. Was, it's like stoners. This is this I is Oliver care. Stone's dream project, and he did it very Good for well. him. I was left oh, out. I don't you like didn't movies like about Salma stoners. You did like Salma Hayek as a Mexican Look, mommy here's dearest? Here's the problem. She stoners are, make for boring drug addict movies. Cokeheads make for but much better drug addict Well, movies. that's what you have Salma Hayek for. Well, she was doing Faye Dunaway. She was doing Mommy Dearest. Salma Hayek I actually loved. The rest of the movie, eh, not as much. But she was really amazing. Uh, I, I'll tell you one of the things that the movie did that really ticked me off, if you're going to put three people in a love affair together, let them all three be in love with each other. But weren't they brothers? No. No, oh. no they weren't brothers. Because I think I've rented that movie. I've rented that movie. I yeah. thought it was nicely done. We got to it see was just right. enough. It was and... alright, but there was a... The, the, their their uh, camaraderie, I think, would have been more interesting to me if they had explored okay. that well, relationship a bit. I want to know if Mark agrees with me that Argo was one of the most shockingly good films of the year. I could not believe Ben Affleck p- pulled that off. Yeah, that I, I totally agree. You were not a fan of The Town or the the other one, so, so. Gone Baby Gone? So, well, so. I loved Gone Baby Gone. I thought Gone Baby Gone was a better I, I, adaptation. I don't of, agree. I thought it was better than Mystic River as far as adaptations of Dennis Lee Haynes. Mystic River Mystic was two, hour, two and a half hours of nothing. You hated but, Mystic River? I didn't yeah. hear this. The ending of Mystic oh, you hated River the ending was the of stupidest River. thing I have yeah. ever seen on film in my life. What did you think of Argo? I have not seen Argo. It's, it's fantastic. I've seen it's Argo. It's a great ride. It's fantastic, and he is—he is, he is such fantastic. for a third for a third movie. He is such a confident director. You really, I agree. You really just sit there and, be, and get taken on this journey, and yeah. for a movie where you know the ending, yeah, that's what it I was keep so it's exciting. Still suspenseful. So exciting. They're, know what happened. they're aliens, right? Yeah, is that the end? No. Yeah. I saw the movie. It's very <laughs> challenging. It's one of the reasons I really want to see Zero Dark Thirty because espionage is unless you're dealing with an actual raid people or the actual talking. escape. It's people talking. It's Ugh. meetings, it's phone calls. Blah, and I blah, think blah. he did an okay job of, of adding some suspense to it. But I, I don't think, I think it's like he's, he's one of those directors where he's like he's almost there. Like he's almost brilliant, but there's a... Well, it's there, the almost that you're feeling the fact that he really did not play up how complicit America was with the Shaw. That I would yeah. like to have seen more strongly put out yeah. there. I, I, it was yeah. a little too neat. I agree to a point, but I think that because this movie was specifically about rescuing those seven embassy workers, that it would have been... It might have thrown the movie off if it became more political. I think the movie... But, for me, what made the people that I saw it with who were young enough to not know what the hostage crisis right. was... Um, How desperate it, it made that? that? It made them want to investigate more and learn more about Good. that. And I thought that that was, you know... A, but their extreme anger, I oh, think, should have been explained Yeah, I more. would agree with that. I agree. As, as it is, they came off as a bit goonish. Like yeah, they were the, all, they're being that way just because, oh, they're irritated. Well, maybe yeah, they show kind of, why they are They were are kind of like so Indians irritated. In an old western, exactly. they were just bad guys. To hear our complete interview with Ted Casablanca and Mark Andreco, download episode six from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. 
Oscar-winning film Argo was the subject of a lot of dinner party show interviews around the time of its release, as you'll hear in this highlight from our interview with journalists Ted Johnson and Tim Williams. Tim, you have seen Argo. The other high-profile Oscar snub is that Ben Affleck did not get a Best Directing nod for that film. What was your opinion of uh, Argo and his job there? I liked Argo very, very much. The only thing I didn't like was the last part of it. I thought the last 20 minutes was not only too long but also unbelievable. Um, Ted's laughing at it. I don't is know why he has to start the giggles. It is a true story, <laughs> It right? is a true story, but from what I understand from up. Ted was that the last part is, Wait they play very loose with the facts Really? In the Tell last us part. about that. Tell us about that. Well, the, the there's a big chase at the end. Is yes. They're getting, uh, they're going to the Tehran airport, and uh, they get on the plane, and all these uh, security officers are chasing after the plane. That never happened. And they drive onto the runway. Yes, that never happened. And also, there's a, uh, Alan Arkin is wow. nominated for Best and Supporting Actor. Alan Arkin's Arkin. character. That's yeah, also. Alan I thought Arkin. the Alan Arkin character might have been a few different people compiled kind of into one character, but Ted tells me that character never even existed. There was no one like that. There was no producer. There was no producer on the fake movie that they no. were using as the cover. So the but John Goodman character, he was the fake real. director. That was real. Okay. That was real. He was a and makeup all, artist yes. who had done stuff for the Planet it, of the Apes and that, and he was the one that kind of got... Um, I guess gave them the uh, their the, credibility, the credibility, yeah, to actually be Hollywood. And, and they, there, there was a story in Variety about Argo, so that actually did pick. Okay, now here's my question: Does anyone believe that 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 Ben Affleck is is snubbed by Hollywood because there's still something about Ben Affleck that people feel they remember the Geely and all the J Lo stuff, and there's still something that seems he's not worthy of Oscar? Honestly, I loved his reaction to the snub. He was like, "Really?" Because I. I actually wrote and directed and appeared in a movie that was nominated for Best Picture of the Year. I, I don't actually feel all that snub. He said, at what point am I supposed to... I wasn't nominated for Best Score either or Best Songwriter. Wow. Or should I feel snubbed about those any of those bastard things? Those guys really that I was so humble. Yeah, I, good I, for him. I thought it was really... He really took the high road. Although the remark at the, at the, uh, the critics... Right where he said, "I'd like to thank the Academy." I thought that was a nice little <laughs> a sort dig. of like a nice, a nice little, little yeah, a nice well, little. Well, you, you know, the Oscars they don't release the actual vote totals. I would love it if they released the vote totals mm -hmm. and by, you could see if he by lost neighborhood, by like, like, yeah, like by neighborhood, map, yes. like with the map, precincts. Yes, <laughs> yeah. he that lost by a certain number of votes. You know, you could you could we could tell, you know, and you would read more into it exactly what happened. My guess is that maybe some Academy members thought, well, he has to pay his dues. He still has a ways to go. He's going to have a long career ahead of him. Spielberg faced the same thing. Yeah. And then, don't you think like uh, Beast of the Southern Wild, you said uh, you did not enjoy no. that film at all, nor, yeah. nor did I. Um, I think there are certain films that the Oscars or that the Academy feels they have to kind of champion that they're going to they're going to make this film. A yes, yeah. Well, and also, Beasts of the Southern Wild is ripe for that kind of treatment because it was clearly made on almost no budget. True. It's adapted from a very offbeat, unconventional play that without wasn't some Broadway actors. musical. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Les Mis. Without professional actors, the the young girl who's nominated for Best Actress absolutely deserves the nomination. Adorable. It's a remarkable Adorable. performance. But it is a movie that, for me, as as somebody who grew up in Louisiana, I didn't connect its imagery to Louisiana or its production design. Uh, the clothes seemed odd. The swamp environment didn't seem very South Louisiana to me. And this, I had problems with the story. The story seemed to celebrate a young girl's return to an abusive, alcoholic environment. And I just thought, I'm not really sure 
what this says about Katrina because it, it is being touted as a Katrina movie. And it is to a degree, but I just, I, it was completely lost on me. I, 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 the movie that I would have nominated in its place was The Impossible, which was about the tsunami, which was met with an incredible degree of controversy because it's one white family's story of surviving the Southeast Asian tsunami. Also right? a true story. Yeah, it is a true story. However, they were from Spain and they're being played by two Anglo-Saxon actors. That, I think, <laughs> but I'll bet that's not the thing they're upset about. I don't think it is. Yeah. Well, this... This is the thing. Actually, I actually think this was a really good year for movies, and in contrast to last year. So there was a lot of movies. I mean, as we're you know we're talking about yeah. it here, there's a lot of different movies that were in contention, and it just makes this process a lot more unpredictable. Yeah. So to hear our complete interview with Ted Johnson and Tim Williams, download episode ten from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Sometimes you have to defend your favorites here on The Dinner Party Show, as novelist Greg Hurwitz and Steve Barry learned in these two clips. I actually, I, I know you're a fan of Terrence Malick. I'm actually a fan of some of his films. I did not see Tree of Life, but I was a fan of The New World. Yeah, New World, I really, and I didn't dislike I, tree, The Tree of Life, but I just, it was I, it was more like a presentation than a yes. movie. Like, yes. I found it hypnotic. I gotta say, I love so Tree of Life. So you went to sleep? No, I didn't go to sleep. <laughs> I just found it was it was so crazy and archetypal, and I was prepped for it. You have to be in preparation for a Terrence Malick movie. I agree. So I like went. I was in the right mode. Yeah, you have to. Weed, you yeah. can't go in cold. No, you I would know? think you'd want sober. something like yeah. caffeine to right, stay absolutely. awake. It was just really. It was so nonlinear that it was very challenging as a film. And usually, I'm a. I'm very much a structure slut. For I like story. I like structure. I like plot. Totally. So usually, this would be my opposite. But I, I found it mesmerizing. What is your opinion of, of the Steven Spielberg movie Lincoln, which was nominated for a Best Picture? Yeah, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's doing what I'm talking about. It was breaking the myth. At one point in there, you know, the, the, the Daniel Day Lewis's character, you know, he says that he says the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't do anything. I need this amendment. Mm-hmm. I need this amendment to, to free to get this done. That's kind of the now, point of Lincoln the movie. Hates, Lincoln hated slavery. I don't think there's any question about that. Right. I, uh, he certainly stopped the spread of slavery, which he did have the power to do. He could stop the, the spread of it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, and he certainly wanted to end it. But to say that Lincoln freed the slaves is false. Download episode two from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com to hear our complete interview with Greg Hurwitz and download episode 74 for our interview with Steve Barry. Both episodes are also available on iTunes along with all other episodes of The Dinner Party Show. Famed prosecutor Marsha Clark is also a critically acclaimed mystery novelist, and she's in contention for most frequent guests here at the Dinner Party Show. Here she is, along with author Jan Burke, talking about which TV shows get her vote for the most authentic depiction of the criminal justice system. Speaking of the courtroom, Samiko Salson would like to know, Marsha Clark, how do you feel about the television portrayals of prosecutors in the various programs like Law and oh, Order? Do they measure good, up to real life experience? Good question. And is there anything particular you would want to show in your stories that haven't been shown in those portrayals? Well, I think that actually prosecutors are doing a lot better nowadays than they used to in the Perry Mason days. Um, back in the Perry Mason days, prosecutors were always <laughs> nimrods. They were. <laughs> I mean, starting with the name Hamburger. Hamburger, right? Does it get any worse? 
thank you, Jan. You know, it's like, okay. It's a miracle any kid grew up wanting to be a prosecutor after that. But um, nowadays, it really is cool. Law & Order in particular, the original series, was right on the money. That really is very, very close to true and accurate. And the one thing I want to show, and TNT right now is developing um, a one-hour drama based on my series uh, oh, books. So, excellent. Yay! Thank you, get to show what I want to show, which is the fun. I was talking about that. The fun, the laughter, the camaraderie, the crazy of it. You know, it's, they're not, the, prosecutors aren't necessarily all that right angle law enforcement. In fact, I, I right. knew plenty of prosecutors who were, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, keep going, please. <laughs> I stop at that critical we're moment. We're only live. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, so, yeah, so I'd like to show that other side where there are they are they are nuts and they are wild and they're crazy and they get high and they whatever, but they do a good job. It's not like they're they're falling down on the job. They're just not um, all that straight laced. And I'd like to show that side of it. Wild have you, and crazy have you seen this major crimes um, show that's on with Mary McDonald now, mm -hmm. where they they yes. work very closely with the DA's yes. office to negotiate pleas right. rather than to have to go to court, which is true. Absolutely. If we had to go to trial on every case that got filed, we would collapse. The whole system would collapse. Ninety-seven percent oh. of the cases do get pled out. Huh. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they have, mm. to. they have to. To hear this complete interview with authors Marsha Clark and Jan Burke, download episode five from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Next up, comedian Alec Mappa and radio host Tony Sweet send our favorite sampler spinning in a different direction. Why aren't we surprised? Did you say that Hong Kong Fui? Hong Kong Fui was in the original version that he that. got cut. For, yeah. yeah, they were trying I mean, to, to were shake trying some. To for the young people listening, Hong Kong Fui was a cartoon character in the 70s, voiced by Scatman Crothers. Really? Uh, yes, he was a karate that, yeah. chopping dog. Remember <laughs> Scatman Crothers who played the, yeah, the innkeeper in The Shining? In the Shining? Yeah, yeah, axe like, to the head, Scatman yeah, Crothers. Spoiler a, alert. Yeah, he was, a, he was a voice of uh, uh, a dog that knew martial arts. Tony Sweet, feel free to chime in at any time. Good luck, Tony. I don't remember that. I think you have I'm to so, hit I'm somebody in the head. Maybe we're the same age, Tony. Younger. I don't think I've ever seen it. I just remember the name because it was so... And I'm certainly old enough to have seen it. I'm not really? pretending that. Yeah. But, but I don't think I ever I've watched it. I've heard tale about it. Shazam was probably on oh, at a competing Shazam. time. I and I wasn't switching one. over. Yeah, that was it. Or Tennessee Shit. Tuxedo. <laughs> Tennessee Tuxedo. Tennessee? Was, was he a penguin? He yeah, he was like a superhero penguin, or he was a detective, and he talked like Maxwell Smart, didn't he? <laughs> Oh, I don't remember that. Remember I don't know Maxwell what's happening. Smart? Is this still a show that I'm on? <laughs> to hear our complete interview with Alec Mappa and Tony Sweet, download episode four from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. And now for a little something different. Does that ever really need to be said on The Dinner Party Show? As Eric just proved, The Dinner Party Show is never very good at focusing only on the positive. Speak for yourself, Miss Babe. There are other lines in It's a Wonderful Life, you know. I do know. I make your whole family watch that movie every Christmas. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, bringing you interviews with some of the hottest celebrities who made the mistake of taking Christopher and Eric's call. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and batten down the hatches, because a storm is a-coming. A big storm. They got a tiny but very destructive little storm that keeps coming and 
coming to the dinner party show, no matter how many times we pray for it to stop. It's the Jordan Amper Sandstorm, a relentless, violent marathon of all of the dinner party show episodes featuring our notorious critic at large, Jordan Ampersand. It all starts this Sunday, August 23rd, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, at thedinnerpartyshow.com. It's all part of our countdown to an all-new season of The Dinner Party Show, beginning on September 13th. But first, me! The Dinner Party Show, a new live cast, begins airing every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, at thedinnerpartyshow.com, or through our free mobile app. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where all of our shows are available for free anytime you want to listen. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Good taste gone bad. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Our favorite things aren't always books, movies, and snack foods. Sometimes they're the genres we love and the topics we can't stay away from and the things we haven't tried yet. As we learned during our interviews with New York Times bestsellers Julie Kenner and Lexi Blake. I was just thinking, is there a fantasy book that you'd like to write? Is there some, like, something that's always been, this is the thing I'd like to write about? This is the, do you know what I mean? I love what I'm writing. I mean, and every time I write, it's like, the book that I'm writing is the book that I absolutely hate. And and I love it at the same time. You know, it's like this love-hate relationship. But but yes, I have have two books that I would absolutely love to write at some point, and they're not in genre. So whether or not I will or not, Uh I don't know because... You know, it's it's a risk to leap out of where your fan base is because you don't know whether your readers are going to follow you or not. But one is very um, a very sweeping epic love story that has sort of a bittersweet ending, mm. and it takes place over just a really long period of time and uh-huh. touches on you know old the golden age of Hollywood and all this stuff. Mm. And it's, I mean, most of my books take place within about the span of five minutes. So you know, that's <laughs> seriously. And, um, and the other one is a trilogy of YA books that I have um, that just huh. popped in my head one day that I and I wrote like the first chapter and loved the voice and have never done anything else with ever. But I think it would be great fun to write them. Menage basically means more than a couple, right? I, yes. We know the phrase menage a trois, but that's that's three. But if you describe a book as menage, it just means more than two people oh, are yes. going to be it, in the love uh, relationship. Um, it's even been in traditional publishing for a long mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look back. I, I'm trying to remember when Shayla Black's Wicked, uh, Wicked Ties was around. Now, because uh, I think that was 2000. It was, it was well, well before. Um, Maya Banks had a series that mm-hmm. had Minaj in it. Now, traditional publishing always handled Minaj, though, as something that the couple played at, and then the woman ended up with one partner. Aha. Uh-huh. I see. That, so yeah. I, they liked, you know... I like to call what I write permanent menage. It's a happily ever after. Permanent menage. I love that. But also, and there are two camps of menage. And this gets into the whole codes thing, which I love. Codes. Yeah. They're they're literal letter letter codes that are attached to a lot of the titles, which let you know who touches who in the context of the menage. Very important. Like, so it would be. MFM would be the men don't touch each other, Uh that it's a menage that's solely focused on the woman. Right. MFM, the men also touch each other. It's a a sort of fluid three way. M M M M F M M F yeah M M F and then there are literally M M M M M F M's out there. I just oh yeah, there are somewhere I don't know where all the guys go. 
Some of them are downstairs making brunch. Personally, I prefer writing MMF. Mm-hmm. I've written a lot of both. Um, actually, as Lexia, I've my the MMF I've written is my urban fantasy, which it doesn't start out that way, but boy, it gets there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, but then as <laughs> my old, apparently a big fan. Yeah, I'm working my way through it. I, I see what's coming, and it, I'm enjoying yeah, the, the ride. Yeah. <laughs> Our complete interviews with Julie Kenner and Lexi Blake are both included in episode 113, which you can download from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Rounding out tonight's sampler menu, we end where we began with premier party person Anne Rice and a special highlight from the interview we conducted in her suite at the Hotel Monteleone in New Orleans, the day after the Prince Lestat Ball. So the Times-Picayune is now one of two local papers, and I think they've interviewed you about three times just during this visit. They, <laughs> they came to a meet-and-greet that happened at St. Alphonse's Church, and they posted mm. a video, and they interviewed you before we got here. They interviewed both of us, mm-hmm. and they asked me to submit a list of my scariest Halloween yes. reads, yes. and I didn't include you. Of course not. Because you're, I don't find your book scary. I understood. Uh, but right, it, did it, you get it? Like, Because that was the headline. Christopher leaves mother off list of five scary Halloween reads. And uh-huh. I was like, well, I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I you're okay? That, I can stay? I, of course. I, I can <laughs> keep being your son? I put I put the article up on my Facebook page. I understood completely. And I thought the headline was a hoot. I thought it was a screen. And a lot of people logging on said the same thing. I don't think of her books as scary. One person said something I thought was very funny. They said... Uh, he should have listed her pornography as extremely <laughs> scary. Yeah, scary for me. I've but seen you try and read that out loud. If they read the erotic romance that I'm putting out, that will seem like an act of rank hypocrisy if I say that. But, you know, yeah. it's, um, it is uh, <laughs> just because it's you. I do not condemn those books in any unilateral way beyond that. It's just hard to read your sexual fantasy. But I have to say, I, I, I don't really react to the Chronicles as a fearful sort of no, thing either. It's, I don't consider them horror novels at all. The, the, the revelation of interview and all of it is the reinvention of the vampire as a very romantic poetic yeah. figure yeah. of a I, sort I of think, existential I, yeah. questioning. I've been criticized for not being scary. Well, <laughs> but, that, but that's ridiculous. I mean that's like and I've been criticized for not being an architect. Like a, how yeah. can you you know, I, that's people who are wedded to a single vision of the vampire, and that defeats the right. whole purpose. It's like, I wish she hadn't reinvented vampires. Mm. Okay. I mean, it's like saying, I wish Stephanie Meyer hadn't put them in high school. That's the mm. whole thing. That's mm. her thing. That's what she did. Yeah. So it's the, same, it's the same as the gender question. It's about being forced to play a particular role. And what mm-hmm. you did with the vampires was to have them step out of a role they'd been forced to play. And that's it. Well, Prince will start very much about that. They don't want to play the role anymore of the damned and the abomination. They're just refusing to do it, you know. The whole what? tribe and Prince Lestat is refusing. Are they reacting? How are the fans reacting to Prince Lestat now that they've had the chance to read it? It's only been a couple of days, but well, I'm sure that's um, been voracious. I would say readers, it's the same polarized reaction that all my books get. There are some people loving the book and praising it, and other people saying it's just horrible. You know, they're going to say it's just terribly written, it's, it's awful, she should quit. Uh, so it's it's really the same as always. I mean, uh-huh. I'm not terribly surprised. Uh, I think it's the way. I mean, I've come to expect it. But it's the same reception that most very visible best-selling books get now. Is that true? Well, yeah, yeah. because there's an op- the internet provides an opportunity for everybody to respond at once. Right. And rarely does everybody like one thing. Exactly. You know, like if you go on for 
you know, green beans. girl or Fifty Shades of Grey, <laughs> yeah, you're going to yeah. be able to find the same spot, yeah. and you will find a community of people who are defining themselves by their hatred mm -hmm. for something. We sometimes do it on the dinner party show with certain things we don't Us? like. Never. <laughs> you know, but Why so. Do, how could you say such a thing, Captain Butler? How are you tall? <laughs> it's, it happens. <laughs> it happens. We have our opinions sometimes, and they are very well, sharp. To hear this complete interview with Anne Rice, download episode 92 from our show archive at thedinnerpartyshow.com or from iTunes. Well, that's the last item in our sampler for tonight. And that's the last installment in our TDPS Summer Sampler series. This Sunday, August 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, we begin the Jordan Ampersand Storm, a nonstop marathon of all the Dinner Party Show episodes <laughs> featuring Jordan Ampersand. Oh, dear. That's right. The very best. And the very worst. Of our adorably incompetent critic at large will be playing all week long on our live cast player at thedinnerpartyshow.com and on our free mobile apps. Since when do we call Jordan Ampersand adorable? Until Eric throws me off the show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're staying at long as I'm staying. And you've been listening to The Dinner Party Show. Thanks.